Well, good morning, Christ Memorial Church. Nice to have you here. Um, if you're watching online or you're in the gathering place or you're in Dwell, we want to welcome you all into worship here together. Um, I just want to stop for a minute and recognize Anna Cabrera's ministry that, that so stirs us to write letters, to communicate, and to pray for people who are in prison and also all those who are involved in the 70 times 7 ministry here at Christ Memorial. Um, your heart for reaching out to people who are imprisoned humbles me, so thank you. Uh, we are blessed this morning to have Dr. David Stubbs as our guest preacher. Um, he was born and raised in Los Angeles, and he earned a BS and an MS from Stanford and an MDiv from Princeton and a PhD in theological ethics from Duke. And so this is a man who knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Dr. Stubbs is a professor of ethics and theology here in Holland at Western Theological Seminary, and he is also the co-director of the Hope Western Prison Education Program. And so can we welcome Dr. Stubbs this morning? Great to have you here, David. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, let me start off with, our, with some words from Scripture. Here's, uh, listen to the word of the Lord from Matthew 25, verses 34 to 40. I, I know you are familiar with these because you've uh, been hearing uh, preaching on this for the last couple of weeks, but I think it's good to listen one more time. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, come you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, it, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when, when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. The word of the Lord. Pray with me, please. Triune God, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our highest concern. Amen. Amen. So before jumping to our passage, um, I bring you greetings from Western Theological Seminary. Uh, I'm a professor there, and as you know, there are many close ties between Christ Memorial and Western. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. And um, please know that many warm thoughts and prayers often float from Western over this way. And, uh, and so it's nice to you know, continue to work on the ties between our places. In fact, Felix Theonograha, our president at the seminary, wanted me to share his personal greeting with you all. So um, thank you for having me as a guest here today. 
And as you may know, I'm also co-director of the Hope Western Prison Education Program. And so it's a pleasure to be able to, um, to be part of your series on Matthew 25 and talk about visiting me in prison. Um, as you may know, the, the Hope Western Prison Education Program is a program in which incarcerated men from state prisons around Michigan are accepted into our program and then transferred to the Muskegon Correctional Facility, and there they are able to work toward a Hope College bachelor's degree. Um, they take the same classes and fulfill the same requirements as Hope students on the main campus, and in four years they have the opportunity to become Hope College graduates. So it's an amazing program to be part of. One of the things that it means for me personally is that I get to go to Muskegon Correctional Facility once or twice a week. I enter the prison to be with the students, uh, teach a class or supervise a study hall. And as I move past the razor wire and enter the security bubble and go through the security screening, they often have me take off my shoes and my socks. Um, they want to make sure I'm not smuggling something into the prison. And whenever I take off my shoes and I'm there in bare feet, I often think about Moses, actually, who had to take off his shoes because he was entering a holy place and walking on holy ground. And in an upside-down way, what many people consider a very God-forsaken place is where I often feel God's presence most powerfully during my week. Um, the classroom inside that prison often feels like a holy place to me. And it has made me ponder our passage today in new ways. Jesus says that when you visit those in prison, we are in some mysterious way visiting him. And perhaps my experience of God's presence there is part of what Jesus is talking about in our passage when he says, when you visited them, you visited me. But to better understand Jesus' words, it's helpful to go back to Jesus' day. So come with me, if you will, on a journey back to the first century, and uh, we'll be there for a little while. Um, we'll travel back in our imaginations to the first century world. So what was being in prison like in Jesus' day? Yeah, what was Jesus referring to when he talked about visiting those in prison? Um, and how did those early church, how did the early church practically respond to his call to visit the prisoner? So let's examine both those questions. What was it like to be in prison in Jesus' day? And how did the early church respond uh, before moving back to our present day? So Jesus talks about visiting those in prison. You know, and I put these little quotes up there because there's something wrong, right? <laughs> and it's important to note that in the first century world, prisons like Muskegon, Muskegon Correctional Facility did not exist. Neither Roman nor Jewish rulers sought to bring about the correction of those who committed crimes by keeping them locked up. Nor were places of incarceration in that day specially designed prisons. Uh, so the practices and places behind the English word prison in our Bible um, are quite different than how we use that word today. In fact, the Greek root word in Matthew 25 is phylake, uh, which is better translated as in custody or in the place of guarding. Something like that is true for all but four verses in the entire New Testament. So when we read of someone being in prison in the New Testament, most often it would be more accurate to think of them simply being in custody or in chains, realizing that the passage could be referring to a variety of places and practices. So what were those first century places and practices like? 
Well, during the Roman period from the, first, um, from the 6th century BC to the 5th century AD, a prisoner might have been kept in, kept in custody in a well or in a cave or a converted part of a building or more rarely in a b building that was specially made to keep people in prison or, excuse me, in custody or in chains. And also forced labor in mines and quarries, kind of like chain gangs, um, was also a very, for, uh, very common form of incarceration. In fact, Roman law explicitly stated that people should not be incarcerated as a form of punishment. Um, in other words, those who were locked away or put in prisons in chains, uh, you know, not in the mines, were officially there to await trial or sentencing or to await some other form of punishment. That being said, many people were in fact punished by being kept in custody for long periods of time. So being in such a place was often a very horrible experience in Jesus' day. In fact, somebody named Diodorus Siculus, he's a first century BC historian, he described one prison that was located in present-day Italy in Alba Fusens um, as a dark, deep underground place that was very crowded. And the men imprisoned there were waiting something for them, uh, for something for, to happen to them, for them to be sentenced or for them to await their punishment. But he just said, he said that the people who were in there started to look like animals, he said, and the stench was almost too bad for anyone to, to approach the door. An accused person might languish in such a place for a very long time. And so many people bribed officials so that they would finally hear, um, uh, so that their friends could finally come to trial. And many prisoners simply died in such places or um, committed suicide uh, because it was so horrible. And authorities often chained and tortured prisoners, and the chains themselves were horrible to bear. The historian Plutarch describes, and here's a quote, the inflammations surrounding wounds, the savage gnawing of ulcers in the flesh, and tormenting pains caused by chains and fetters. And then there were the mines. Uh, people of many kinds, those condemned for crimes, prisoners of war, slaves, and even free persons worked in and around these mines. Uh, many people were sentenced to work in the mines for five to 10 years as punishment for some kind of crime. And these mines and quarries were located throughout the Mediterranean world, and the size of them is somewhat astounding. Um, the second century, uh, second century BC historian Polybus, uh, Polybius excuse me, uh, estimated that 40,000 people worked the mines near a place called New Carthage, Spain. 40,000 people in this one mine. The worst jobs were reserved for prisoners and involved living in cramped quarters, wearing heavy chains, breathing toxic fumes from heavy metals and torch smoke, and not seeing daylight for months at a time, if they even survived that long. Now, besides all these physical dangers and torments, being incarcerated in the Roman world had tremendous social ramifications. Of these, perhaps it was shame that caused the greatest amount of suffering for people. The shame of imprisonment went beyond feeling guilty Greco-Roman values taught, that, taught Romans to hold in contempt people who had lost their freedom, since they believed that autonomy and self-mastery were primary virtues. Imprisonment, in fact, was so powerfully degrading and shameful that some people committed suicide rather than suffer such indignity. Demosthenes wrote that those whose crimes were punished with imprisonment rather than some other kind of punishment could expect to, quote, live in disgrace 
for the rest of their lives. Incarceration also took away some people's sense of purpose and their sense of responsibility, and this often led to great despair. So understanding the great shame associated with incarceration and punishment helps us to better understand what Jesus suffered when he himself was imprisoned. As it is written in the book of Hebrews, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. But many others did not scorn the shame of the Roman penal system. Family and friends often deserted those in prison because of their crimes. They also deserted them for fear of being associated with their crimes. And this fear was well-founded, since many Christians who attended the trials of fellow prisoners or visited them in prison were incarcerated or even killed. For example, two men named Agapius and Dionysius helped six fellow Christians who were imprisoned. And in the process, they drew attention to themselves and were eventually imprisoned and beheaded because of it. Okay, so these were some of the realities of imprisonment in the first century. How did the early Christians respond to Jesus' teaching to visit the prisoner? In short, they responded with traumatic and organized practices of visitation and care for prisoners, both fellow Christians as well as for those who are not Christians. As they did this, they gained the attention of many within the Roman world. Certainly, there was the occasional person who visited a loved one in custody. But the early church's sustained attention, regular practices of visitation and care, and generosity to prisoners was something quite new and something that was actually very distinctly Christian in the Roman world. People noticed. The Roman authorities paid attention. Why are these crazy Christians doing these things? Sort of what they thought. And not all of this attention was admiration. There's a second century Roman writer named Lucian who wrote a satirical play about this. The play is called The Passing of Peregrinus. In this play, Lucian makes fun of the way that Christians actually cared for a well-known criminal named Peregrinus Proteus. Peregrinus was believed to have committed patricide, adultery, and pederasty. Lucius was appalled that Christians cared for this criminal who had become a Christian. Christians were portrayed in this play as gullible and even immoral because they raised money for him, visited him, read scriptures to him, and brought elaborate meals for him. And even at certain points, Christian leaders had to tell their congregations to tone down their visitation and care practices. Tertullian, a Christian leader in North Africa, chides his congregation for creating cook shops um, near those who were incarcerated and feeding them so much that they were getting in the way of the prisoners' spiritual disciplines of fasting. <laughs> that tickles me a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, but these acts of care for prisoners were often costly and risky. The journey between Bishop Cyprian's church and the mines of Segus in North Africa would have taken nearly two weeks on foot. Yet Cyprian's church delivered money and letters regularly to the prisoners who were there in the mines. Christians cared for their own, but they also cared for non-Christians. For example, Pacomius, an Egyptian, first met Christians when he was incarcerated in 312 AD. He became a Christian after local Christians fed and cared for him and other non-Christian prisoners. Pacomius went on to become one of the famous desert fathers. Why did they do this? Why did Christians do this? 
These early Christians learned to see those in prison in a different and surprising way because of Jesus. Jesus revealed to us the heart of God. And this involved becoming a prisoner himself, being shamed, tortured, and even put to death as a criminal. As early Christians were imprisoned or killed for their faith, their suffering became understood as part of their identification with Christ. But it also affected how they saw and treated all prisoners and the others, the sick, the orphan, the widow, the poor, groups of people Jesus called the least of these. Many historians argue that it was these practices of compassionate care for the least of these, more than their ideas, that appealed to the majority of the non-Christians who came to join them, and why the Christian church grew so quickly in those first centuries. Okay, so let's move back from the first century to the present day. Let's ask what kind of lessons we might learn from the way the early church responded to Jesus' words to visit the prisoner. Let me suggest three main things. First, the early church, in response to Jesus' call to visit visit the prisoner, did so. They did so in dramatic and practical ways that caught the attention of those in the larger society around them. They did so despite risk and despite great cost. So the first lesson is simply that we should do so as well. Second, the early church learned to look at prisoners in a countercultural way. They looked at those in prison not primarily as criminals, but rather as brothers and sisters, or simply as people, people in need, people loved by God. And so they reached out with compassion, seeking to supply what was needed and what was lacking. In that first century context, they offered money, food, presence, compassion, letters, encouragement, and work to either free them or to better their conditions in whatever way they could. The witness of the early church calls us to similar forms of compassionate action within our world today. So for those who are incarcerated today in our prison system, what do they need? For the most part, they have most of their basic needs of food, shelter, and clothing taken care of, even though there's still work to be done here. But in addition to those basic needs, they need people to remember them to visit them, to bring words of hope and care, to bring Christian fellowship, Christian teaching. And many Christian organizations do precisely those things, like Paul Ministries. But one thing that I'm quite sensitive to is the need of many persons in prison for education. Let me share with you a few statistics about education and prisoners. You may have heard of the term recidivism. Statistics about recidivism tell us whether a person who gets out of prison ends up back in prison. Nationwide, that statistic is about 83%. A 2018 Bureau of Justice statistics study states that 83% of those released from state prisons are rearrested within nine years. But a 2006 study from Emory University showed that for people who are released from prison with just a high school diploma, or a GED, that rate drops to 54.6%. With an associate's degree, it drops to 13.7%. With a bachelor's degree, it drops to 5.6%. With a master's degree, in this study at least, it dropped to 0%. Those numbers, again, are 83% nationally, 55% with a GED, 
13.7% with an associate's degree, and 5.6% with a bachelor's. That's impressive. Behind those numbers are the even more important and deeper changes that are happening in people's lives because of their education. A renewed sense of purpose, renewed identity, renewed dignity, resilience in the face of challenges, the ability to gain employment, and changes in relationships with families and communities. Those numbers suggest to me that what many people in our prisons today need is the opportunity for an education. As Christians, as we are moved by compassion and look to see what needs we might meet for those who are in prison, education is an important gift that we can bring given the realities of incarceration today. So let's move on to a third lesson we can learn from the early church. Those early Christians not only engaged in acts of compassion, but they also questioned and overturned typical assumptions about justice, shame, and social stigma as a result of Christ's life and work. The prison system in the US, for example, is based on assumptions that a person in prison is not capable or worthy of being in public, that justice is being done through imprisonment of them for decades, um, that innocent people outside prison need prisoners to stay in prison for our own safety. But the early church learned to question such logic. They followed Jesus, the God-man who was incarcerated, punished, and put to death by the so-called justice systems of his time. As a result of that, early Christians gained eyes and ears that made distinctions between God's justice and the justice system of the Roman Empire. In our situation of mass incarceration, racial injustice associated with our justice system and the growth of what many call the prison industrial complex, the witness of the early church warns us against contentment with the status quo of prisons today. We as Christians should be quick to spot ways our current system results in the loss of meaning and purpose for too many people. It consumes an immense amount of money, extracts great social costs from our communities, and perpetuates many inequalities due to race, educational attainment, and class within our society. We as Christians, as people of justice, should be quick to recognize when injustice occurs within our justice system. And because many early Christian leaders, such as the Apostle Paul, were often in chains, they also gained eyes and hearts that reevaluated the, the systems of honor, shame, and stigma that incarceration had within their society. The cross of Christ not only shed light on miscarriages of justice within justice systems, Christ's cross also sheds light on the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. We are also all loved by God. So the line separating the innocent from the guilty between those deserving honor and those deserving shame are not marked by the razor wire that surrounds our prisons. In our society, felony convictions, even after people have served all their time, have, having a record of a felony conviction often disqualifies people from ever re-entering our society as equal citizens. Early Christians, in the way they scandalously visited and honored those in prison, called into question such lines of honor and shame within their society. And their witness encourages us to do the same. Jesus, in his first sermon as recorded in Luke 4, was explicit that he, as the Messiah, was going to fulfill Isaiah's vision to, quote, free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. 
Those aren't only metaphors. We, like those in the early church, must remember those in prison as if we were also imprisoned. That's a quote from Hebrews 13.3. As we seek to understand and follow the words of Jesus to visit those in prison, the witness of the early church propels us first to simply visit. Second, to compassionately meet the needs of those we visit in prison. And third, to see those in prison with new eyes and to advocate for justice, mercy, and even forgiveness in ways that might be uncommon or even unpopular in our society. And as we do so, we might catch a glimpse of the face of Christ in everyone we meet. And as we do so, we might also get a sense of God's presence in the most unexpected people and places. So may God give us all the grace and power we need, both as individuals and as a church, to be a light to the nations in the ways that we respond to those in prison. And may the glory of the crucified Messiah, Jesus Christ, shine through us as we do so. Amen.